text we'll be looking at this morning is printed in the bulletin. Um, if you've been with us, we've been looking or sort of looking through uh, the 12 steps, and it brings us to our fourth step this morning. For some of you, you may think that's odd, um, and it is a bit unusual, I'll be honest with you. Uh, why are we doing that? Why are we doing uh, these 12 steps? Why are we looking at these uh, in our time together? And really, it's for this reason. The 12 steps really is about a trustful uh, intimacy with God. Each step uh, has to be taken in sequence. None can be skipped or trivialized. If, uh, if we're having a problem working one of the steps, it really means that we've not worked the steps that have come before. Uh, the first three steps are called the tango, uh, and there's a reason for that. It's, uh, you never leave those. It's a one, two, three sort of life. Uh, the first step is really this, um, I can't. Uh, the second step is uh, God can, and the third step is I think I'll let him. Um, and now we come to the fourth one uh, this morning. This is the rock on which many crash uh, and quit is the best description. Um, it goes like this. We made a fearless and searching moral inventory. Now, doesn't that sound like fun? Um, but it really is the way that we meet God and the way we grow spiritually. Look with me as I read from Psalm 139 this morning. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before word is on my tongue, Lord, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to obtain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The light will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning and we ask that you would be with us because all of us gather this morning needing a trustful intimacy with you. No matter where we come from, no matter where we find ourselves in this life, in this world, we need to meet with you. And so we ask that you would be with us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. There's a scene from a show that we have recently watched, and one of the main characters in this series, Lip, has been looking for a spiritual guide or a sponsor. And they're having their first meeting uh, in this scene. Uh, they're in this coffee house, and Lip begins to tell her 
all the things that are going on in his life that he needs to talk about. His ex-girlfriend's husband has a child by another, his ex-girlfriend, and he, she doesn't know about it. He goes on to say that his sister is going to jail. And this list just goes on and on and on of the things going on in his life. And finally, the other person looks across the table at him and says, Wait a minute, have I dropped into an episode of Gossip Girl? And he's stunned, and he says, What do you mean? And she says, I mean, your sister's going to jail, your ex-girlfriend is having problems with her husband, blah, blah, blah. All this is about other people. He's a little bit hurt, and he says this, well, I was just trying to talk about the things I'm going through, that I'm dealing with. And she looks at him and says, no, you're not. In your mind, you've convinced yourself that all this stuff is about you, but it's not. It stinks for them, but what does that have to do with you? Well, by this point in the conversation, he's completely insulted. He gets up and storms off, and as he's walking out the door, she says to him this, hey, when you want to talk about you, come on back. Does that sound familiar at all to you? The way that we sort of, it's easy to sort of deal with other things, other people, other circumstances than ourselves. In fact, we would do almost anything other than focus on ourselves. Step four says we made a fearless and searching moral inventory. One writer went so far to say that this is the heart of all spiritual awakening. That there is no spiritual awakening apart from this. And what we see in Psalm 139 is just a glimpse of what this actually looks like and what this means. First, just how common it is. And what I mean by that is if you read this psalm, what you realize is that there's nothing exceptional going on here. Nothing exceptional, or at least we can't trace this to anything happening in David's life, anything catastrophic or anything uh, bad that needs to be confessed. Instead, what you find him doing... Uh, is he's reflecting on his life. He doesn't say it, but he's taking an inventory, actually, of what's going on, of his own heart, of his own life. The amazing thing is that we find this practice in every Christian tradition. It doesn't matter which one you look at. In fact, every spiritual writer, whether Christian or not, actually uh, talks about this sort of experience. It's also not exhausted, is the best way to describe it. This is a continual process. What you find in here is that David is basically asking God not just to search him in the past, but to continue to do so. Uh, Look at 23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. See, what David gets at in Psalm 139 is simply this, is that all of us this morning are, as one writer describes us, shipwrecked. By nature, human beings by nature are addicted. And what do I mean by that? Addiction is a modern name, an honest description for what the Bible calls sin. And medieval Christians called passions or attachments. Throughout history, what we've noticed is that it took some serious measures or practices to break us out of those illusions and entrapments. Substance addiction is just a visible form of that. But actually, all of us, if we're honest with one another, are locked into our own habitual way of thinking, of doing things. We're locked into our own defenses that we use uh, just at random, really, with people around us. And we're especially locked into our pattern of thinking, how we process reality in the people around us. 
See, this step encourages us to come to something deeper, a deeper place through struggle. The reason we're looking at the 12 steps is everyone is in need of recovery. It's called different things in different circles, believe it or not. But it all points to the same thing. We say things like this to each other. Well, no one's perfect. And we claim to already know that, sort of. The people around us know that for certain. It's seen not just here, but it's also seen throughout Scripture. Isaiah tells us all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. Paul says there's no one who does good, not one. And if you remember the story of the adulterous woman that was brought before Jesus, he said this, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. And you know the story, right? Everyone walks away. We come to grips with that reality in this step. That's really what this is all about. There's something I know for certain, and that's this. Everyone is human, and everyone is broken. And it really does us no good to pretend or deny otherwise. To put it bluntly or put it another way is this. No one will come to know God through your goodness or through your supposed goodness. They'll only come to know God through your broken humanity. It's not just sort of the commonness of step four, but it's also the confusion. And what do I mean by that? If you were raised in a high moral family or with really strict uh, religious upbringing, there's a high probability, well, actually almost a guarantee that you will completely misunderstand what this step is all about. We look at this and we think, listen, I grew up in that kind of environment. I'm tired of being judged. I'm tired of judging myself, so really, no thanks. I really want no part in this. The problem is to take that approach really drives the insanity that we talked about earlier. So what it's not, it's not an attempt to sort of gain some moral high ground. It's not about trying to see how good or bad you are. Or avoiding bad things in your life even. So, to put it bluntly, it's not confession, if I can put it that way. It's also not just self-flagellation. And I don't, what I mean by that is just beating yourself up. One writer said that's a vengeance on yourself that actually has nothing to do with what a moral inventory is all about. It's also not just trying to make yourself worthless, if I can put it that way. If you read verses 13 through 18, you have a hard time at least coming to that conclusion out of what David writes. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. That doesn't sound like someone who is just going to sort of press down on himself. When you first come into recovery, there is this idea that... um, that you really are worthless, or at least that's how you feel. I know I did. No value. Um, A complete failure, really, on every level that you could look at. And the world actually screams this at us. It says things like this, you're ugly. Uh, You're a failure. You're a fraud. You're second rate. You're second class. You have to do something relevant. You have to have 15 minutes of fame or you're nobody. And the voice around us just drowns out who we are. It's also not about somebody else's perceptions or feelings. In other words, what step four is really not about is owning what I don't own. 
When I came into this step, when I first came into recovery, started working these things, my list, this list, um, it was easy for me to list all of my faults, failures, and flaws. I'll tell you, it was just page after page of that stuff. Um, I had list after list of that, but almost nothing on the positive side. My sponsor took a look at it, and he kept sending me back with this list, sending me back, sending me back, you've got to keep doing it, you've got to do it over, yeah, that looks great, keep doing it. And finally, after several attempts, he just said this, okay, for every negative you put down, you have to put down a positive. I hated that assignment. I'll be honest with you, the idea that I had to balance it out just felt like a complete fraud. What this really is, and what you see in Psalm 139 is this, it's a call to honesty. Finally, without blame shifting and without excuse making. One writer said this, it's an awareness, an encounter. See, David doesn't call it a moral inventory, but if you read Psalm 139 carefully, that's exactly what it is. 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. To accept the habits, patterns, thoughts that sabotage my peace and my relationships. It's a call to see what's actually there. Test me and know this. Show it to me and see if there's anything there for me to see. I know you've probably seen the show on TV, Hoarders, um, reality TV. Um, I'm going to be honest. I don't feel good about those type of programs. Um, Turning someone else's struggles, failures, illnesses into entertainment just doesn't make me feel good. Hoarders, they tend to save everything. They can't throw anything away, even if it's killing them. Pile stuff up without shifting through it, without inventorying it, or deciding what to keep and what to discard. And a true hoarder would never admit that there's a hoard there. They just can't see it. It's sad. And it's sick. Step four, owning what I've done, who I am. It's seeing what is overlooked, what we tuck away. The things that affect my behavior, my peace, my serenity. Honest about my mistakes and my limitations. I've been at least upfront about worry. Um, before my son went into recovery, it just was overwhelming uh, worry for him. You would think, he checked himself in, that everything would be wonderful then. It would just, all the worry would go away. Nope. Actually, it doubled down. Uh, would he stay? He could check himself out any time he wanted. Would he work it? Would he actually work the program? Would it actually work for him? See, what this tells me is the worry was not about him at all. It was about me. See, this is good news. Step four is great news because you're not trapped. It doesn't have to stay this way. It's a blow, certainly, to the ego and to the self because we all want to think well of ourselves. We're blinded inside to what really is going on. But it's a chosen blindness. I'll focus on anyone but me. To see what is there would destroy my public and my personal self-image. Are you the kind of person that can never say no? You think you're being really caring, but then later you're really bitter and angry that you did it. See, we need these conflicts. We need relationship difficulties, moral failures, actually, or we will never spot, track, 
or list our shadows. Those are necessary mirrors because we all think or take. Our pattern of thinking is normative, logical, and surely it's true, even if it doesn't fully compute. We keep doing the same things over and over again, even if it's not working. It doesn't work for us and it doesn't work for those around us. It's God's grace that enters in and allows us to see that. So that's, that's sort of one side of this. And now we've got a choice. That really does bring us to what we see here. Uh, it, it could be a release, actually. For us, the only way to do this is if you're absolutely confident that God cares for you. Whatever you find there, He's not trying to hurt you, but instead He's trying to set you free. That it's actually His care for you that allows you to see it. Look at verse 24. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Listen, your heart and your mind is like a bad neighbor. You never want to go there alone. Um, Without the confidence that God cares for you, that He wants only what's best for you, that His love will never diminish, no matter what you find, you should not go there, actually. You shouldn't look at those shadows at all. After all, the reality is that God knows it all anyway, and He still cares for you, and He still loves you. David, utterly resting in God's presence and His care in the first 12 verses. It's just overwhelming. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Not only am I confident that God can carry whatever He finds there, whatever we find there, but He can do that for others too. I can stop for at least a moment blaming others for all my misery and stop taking everything so personal. Last time my son relapsed, he was in the ER, and I went to see him. He wanted to apologize. I'm sorry, all this kind of stuff. I'd heard it all before, so really we weren't going to have that conversation. I just had one question for him, and that was this. He said, what is it? And I said, have you had enough? His response was, well, I thought so. I said, I don't, what you thought about the past is irrelevant. Have you had enough now today? See, you can choose to be for release or you can choose to stay miserable. Have you had enough? It's personal honesty or it's misery. See, you can continue to carry all that guilt, shame, anger, blame, all that stuff, and no one can take it from you. That's the sad reality. You can continue to try to control, deny, blame, shift, make excuses, point fingers at everyone around you. You have to be ready for step four. You have to be miserable enough to say, I'll do whatever it takes. For some of you here, some of your coping mechanisms have served you well for years. But the good news is now you've outgrown them. You can take a look at them and let them go. It's absolutely necessary for spiritual growth or vital relationship with God that you make a fearless and searching moral inventory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy. That in your tenderness, you do allow us to see the shadows, the things we keep hidden, the things that do not serve us well, the things that make us hard to love. 
I pray that you would give us the courage this morning, the boldness, the confidence in your care to do the very difficult thing. To be honest with ourselves. Honest about where we are. Honest about our struggles. Honest about our strengths as well as our weaknesses. By your grace and mercy, be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.